Church, we are in Ezekiel chapter 44, verses 1 and 2, a message I've entitled simply, The Gate, The Gate. Please stand with me out of honor to God and His Word as I read. Then he, then he brought me back the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary, which looks towards the east, and it was shut. Then said the Lord unto me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no man shall enter in by it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it. Therefore it shall be shut. Thank you. You may be seated. So looking at the gate this morning, of course, when we think about gates, we think about, well, we either think of computers, you know, Bill Gates, or we think of the pearly gates of heaven. And so I'm going to tell a joke now, but please, there's bad theology in this joke. So don't say, I can't believe he believes that. I don't believe that. It's just a joke, all right? But it has to do with the pearly gates. So a man dies and goes to heaven where he meets Peter at the pearly gates. And Peter asks what he has done to deserve to enter into heaven. The man answered, well, I once saw a biker gang harassing an old lady. So I yanked the leader by his nose ring and punched him in the face. I then proceeded to knock down all the gang's motorcycles like dominoes. And I told them, if you want to harass this lady ever again, you have to get past me. But Peter was very impressed. He's looking at his clipboard. He says, you know, we don't have this act of bravery in our records. When did this happen? The man said, about three minutes ago. Let's look at the gate. First of all, by way of introduction, Ezekiel's future temple, we talked about this last week, but Ezekiel's future temple will have six gates, three inner gates, three outer gates, facing north, east, and south. When you look at this picture, you'll see it a couple more times today, the gates look like zippers. So as you're looking at that, when you see things that look like zippers, these are the gates. And so Ezekiel's future temple has Three outer gates that look like zippers and three inner gates that look like zippers facing north, east, and south. Now, we learned that God's glory entered the temple through the east gate. That's in chapter 43 and verse 4. We looked at that last week. And we even defined for us what the glory of God is that came in there. The glory of God is the visible manifestation of the presence of God. And we don't first meet the glory of God here in Ezekiel. It was in the wilderness wandering as the children of Israel wandered through the wilderness. The visible presence of God, the glory of God was available as a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. Then in the tabernacle, when that first tabernacle was set up, the the Bible says that God's glory entered that first tabernacle. And then when the first temple was built, we talked about this last week, Solomon built the first temple. And as it was dedicated, God's glory came and entered into that first temple. When the second temple was built, God's glory didn't enter as a cloud, but as the Christ, Jesus himself, came into that second temple, and thereby God's glory was there. Ezekiel earlier witnessed God's glory leaving the first temple to the east before it was destroyed in 586 B.C. That's in chapter 11 and verse 23. So that's our introduction. So let's look at this gate. First of all, beginning with the orientation. The orientation, the gate is oriented to the east. Now, multiple important scripture references concern the east. For instance, the Garden of Eden, the Bible says, was in the east. The tabernacle and the temples all faced east. The wise men from the Christmas story, they came from the east. Jesus will set foot on the Mount of Olives, which is east of Jerusalem, when he returns. 
Zechariah tells us that in Zechariah 14 and verse 4. It says, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west. Now critics will argue, since all these references to the east are so prominent in the Bible, critics will argue that sun worship was involved because the sun rises in the east. And so they would say the Hebrews, just like all the rest of the pagans, they worship the sun, and so they put everything oriented to the east because that's what they were worshiping, the sun. But we all know the sun does not actually rise, but it appears to rise as the earth rotates. What we as humans learned about 171 years ago, God has known all along. We do not worship the sun, S-U-N, but we do worship the sun, S-O-N. We worship the son of God. And the Bible is clear that God created the sun to serve, not to be served. When you read in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 14, when God creates a sun, he says it's supposed to divide uh, light, uh, day from night and it's supposed to be there for signs and seasons. And so we're not to serve the sun. The sun is there to serve us. Oh, by the way, a piece of trivia for you. Do you know that generally speaking, cemetery headstones face east? Go to any cemetery... And generally, it's not always the case because sometimes cemeteries are round. But typically speaking, generally speaking, any cemetery you go to, all the headstones will face east. So if you ever get lost somewhere and you don't know which way is northeast, south, or west, find a cemetery and most of the headstones will be facing east. Do you know why? It is so when those folks are resurrected, they will be facing Jesus. So the idea is that Jesus comes, remember, he's going to be east of Jerusalem. He comes from the east. They will rise from the dead. They're facing the east, so they'll face Jesus on the resurrection. Now, kind of humiliating for me, clergy are buried facing west, which means when Jesus comes back, we'll have our back to him. Why? Well, supposedly, when Jesus comes back, the resurrection occurs, All the believers rise. The clergy will be facing the believers so that we can continue to minister to you. But I'm guaranteeing you won't be wanting to see your clergy. You'll be wanting to see Jesus. While it is true that most cemetery headstones face east, and while it is true there will be a resurrection, and while it is true that many clergy will be buried facing west, this whole idea that I've just shared with you is baloney. It's baloney. It doesn't matter which way you're facing because you're already as a believer with Christ in heaven. So who cares about which way your body is facing when it goes in the ground? But if you have anything to say with my burial... I would really like to see Jesus when I come up. I don't really want to see you, and I know you don't want to see me. (laughs) So we see the orientation of the gate is to the east. Secondly, I want us to look at the condition of that gate. It is shut. We saw that in verse 1. We saw that in verse 2. The gate is shut. Now, why? Well, we're told why in verse 1, because God's glory had entered there. And because God's glory had entered that outer gate, it was going to be shut. Now, there's two things going on. First of all, as I told you before, God's glory had already left to the east back in chapter 11 and verse 23. 
But now God has come back to this newly rebuilt temple. He's coming through that gate. He's saying, close the doors. What is he saying? I'm not leaving again. I'm coming in. Shut the gate. I'm staying. For whatever reason, God chose that particular gate to be his own. He hallowed it with his arrival. And no one else is to profane it by entering or exiting it. You see, God is holy. That word holy means separate, apart from. He is not like we are. Now, we are like he is and that we are made in his image. We are like he is. He is not like we are. And he's not just holy. The Bible says God is holy, holy, holy. He is thrice holy. He is way set apart. He is way different from what we are. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 6. This is where we're introduced not to the holiness of God, but the holy, holy, holiness of God. Isaiah gets a picture of God in heaven, in God's heavenly temple. Isaiah chapter 6, I'm going to read the first eight verses there. As we are introduced to not the holiness of God, but the holy, holy, holiness of God. Isaiah writes, in the year that King Uzziah died, I also saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he took with tongs from the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. I want to point out a few things as Isaiah sees God. In his throne. He saw God and God was high and lifted up. And God had a train. Now a king's robe length indicated his wealth, his power. So the more wealthy a king was, the more power a king has, the longer his train was, the longer his robe was. Well notice God's robe, it filled the whole temple. There were special six-wing angels who declare God's holiness. And they don't only say he's holy, holy, holy. They say he's the Lord of hosts. In other words, he's the Lord of the armies. He's the Lord of heaven. And these creatures go on to say his glory doesn't just fill the temple. It says the whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 4 tells us the doorpost shook with God's voice and the place was filled with smoke. And so Isaiah saw God. But look what happens next. Then Isaiah saw himself. Isaiah recognized his unworthiness before God. Look what he says in verse 5. Then I said, woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah recognized his unworthiness before God. So he declares his unholiness. He declares his unworthiness. He says, woe is me. Woe means great affliction and grief. He says, I'm undone. That means I'm ruined. I'm destroyed. He mentions unclean lips. His own and his people. You need to know that Isaiah was a godly and faithful prophet. But when he stood before God himself, Isaiah realized the disgusting sinner he was. 
And so Isaiah saw God in all his glory. And then he saw himself. But he wasn't done yet. Then he saw others. In verse 8, God asks whom he can send to proclaim his salvation. He says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah volunteers to go. He says, here I am. Send me. This experience that Isaiah had, a vision of heaven and God on his throne, should be our personal worship experience every time. Whether we're coming to church, whether we're walking through the woods, whether you're sitting in your easy chair and you're worshiping God, however it is and wherever you worship God, this should be your experience. This should be my experience. Number one, we see God for who he is. And then secondly, we see ourselves for who we are. And then we see others who need God's grace and we commit to take it to them. And so as we look at the condition of this gate, it's shut. And it's shut because God has passed through it. And God is holy. And nobody but nobody is to profane that place where God has come through. I don't care how good they are. Nobody is to profane that gate. It's shut. Now there's a great southern gospel song called The Eastern Gate. Mom, Dad, and I were singing it just this past week together. But I want you to know this song, it's a great song. I love to sing it. It's got a great melody. It is biblically irrelevant and theologically vacant. It goes like this. I will meet you in the morning just inside the eastern gate. If you hasten off to glory, just linger near the eastern gate. Keep your lamps all trimmed and burning for the bridegroom watch and wait. He'll be with us at the meeting just inside the eastern gate. I will meet you in the morning. I will meet you in the morning just inside the eastern gate over there. Love that song. Love to sing it. Love to hear people sing it. It is biblically irrelevant and theologically vacant. My friends, just because a song or hymn is old doesn't make it good. Likewise with new songs, each must be evaluated on its own merits. There are those that say, oh, we only sing the old hymns because they're full of theology and power. Not all of them. The Eastern Gate was written in 1905. That's an old song. It's in the old hymn books. It is biblically irrelevant and theologically vacant. Likewise, there are some new songs that are biblically irrelevant and theologically vacant. Don't think that just because music is old, it's good. It might be old and bad. And don't think because music is new, it's automatically bad. Each song must be evaluated on its own merits. You say, well, Brother Gary, you're getting off track here. You're talking about hymns. I thought we were talking about the gate. All right. And Brother Gary, you know very well, I have been to Israel and you haven't. That's right. I've not been to Israel. And you might say, when I was Israel, in Israel, I saw the eastern gate. It's in Jerusalem's old city. What do you have to say about that? Well, this eastern gate in Jerusalem was a city gate, not a temple gate. What we are talking about in Ezekiel is a temple gate. You say, yeah, but it's all walled up. The eastern gate is closed up. It's shut, just like Ezekiel said. True enough, it was walled up by a Muslim, Sulanami the Magnificent, in 1540. You know why? To prevent the Jewish Messiah from returning to Jerusalem. He thought, you know what? I've read Ezekiel. He's going to come through that gate. I'm going to wall it up. He wasted his bricks. You know why? Because Ezekiel's gate hasn't been built yet. It's still in the future. 
And so the Eastern Gate in Jerusalem, if you go to Jerusalem, by the way, uh, Andy's looking at a trip that we can go to Jerusalem. They'll probably take us to the Eastern Gate and they'll show us how it's all walled up. And you and I can just shake our head and say, well, we know better. We know that's not Ezekiel's gate. So we've seen today the orientation of the gate. It's to the east. We have seen not only the orientation, we've seen the condition of the gate. It's shut. Thirdly, let's look at the reservation. The eastern gate is reserved for the prince. Look in verse 3. got to get back to Ezekiel. Verse 3 says there, talking about the gate, it is for the prince. The prince, he shall sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate and shall go out by the way of the same. Now, we don't know who the prince is. And I don't care what commentaries you read. We do not know who the prince is, but we know who he's not. He is not the Lord Jesus. Why? Because this prince must offer sacrifices for his own personal sin. Look here at Ezekiel 45 and verse 22. And upon that day shall the prince prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bullock for a sin offering. So whoever this prince is, we know who he isn't. He isn't the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe he's a royal administrator. Maybe he's the prime minister. Whoever and whatever he is, his faith is very public and he sets the example for his people in worship. Now the prince will not be permitted to enter the outer eastern gate, but he will be permitted to use it. Again, he will not be permitted to enter the outer eastern gate. Remember, God's glory came through there, shut the gate. But he is permitted to use it. How so? He can enter it from the other side. These gates are not like a gate you know, on your fence at home. These gates are like hallways. And so even though the door is closed, there's still the rest of the hallway. And so the prince can go around the other side and enter into the hallway. He just can't come through the door. And as we read... He can eat there as part of his worship. So here we are back with the zippers again. I'm talking about the zipper clear on the right where it says east, or it's got the E for east. That is the gate that is shut. And so the prince cannot come in where that E is. He'd have to come in either the north gate or the south gate, but then he can go from the west into that gate. He just can't go through the door. Now the inner eastern gate, if you keep coming from the left, from the E there, come to the next zipper right in a straight line, the inner eastern gate. The Bible says it is to remain closed except for Sabbaths and new moons. Go with me to chapter 46 and verse 1. It says, Thus saith the Lord, the gate of the inner court that looks toward the east shall be shut the six working days, but on the Sabbath it shall be opened, and in the day of the new moon it shall be opened. And so this gate, the inner eastern gate, stays closed except for once a week on the Sabbath and once a month on the new moon. On these days, the prince is permitted to enter this inner gate, but he must stop short of entering the inner court. So if you notice back to the picture, you've got the zipper way on the outside, then you come into the next zipper, and then there's that kind of white area, and it's labeled inner court. So he can come through that inner eastern gate, but he must stop. He cannot step into the inner court. Now the people may worship at this gate, but unlike the prince, they can't enter that inner eastern gate. Look at verse 3. Likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the door of this gate before the Lord in the Sabbath and in the new moon. 
So there's this prince, and we don't know who he is. He's not Christ. Yet at the same time, I want to tell you that he provides us a picture of Christ. He's a reminder of Christ. He's not Christ, but he's, he's a picture of Christ. For instance, in his title, his title is the prince. We know that Jesus from Isaiah 9, 6 is the prince of peace. And we know that the prince of peace will rule over the earth at peace from the city of peace called Jerusalem. Not only does he remind us of Christ in his title, he reminds us of Christ in his example. Remember I said about this prince, he sets a good example for his people in worship. Well, Jesus also set a perfect example for us how to live, how to pray, how to worship, how to sacrifice. Not only does the prince remind us of Christ in his title and in his example, but also in his portal. The prince could go where others could not. Remember, he could go into that outer eastern gate from the other side. He could go in that inner eastern gate, but only so far, but nobody else could go in there. Well, Christ has gone where we have not yet. Heaven. One day, yes, but not yet. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on that in Hebrews 4.14. He says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. So we've seen the orientation of the gate to the east. We've seen the condition of the gate. It's shut. We've seen the reservation of the gate. It's for the prince. But really, let's get something that relates to us. Let's look at the appropriation of the gate in the New Testament. Jesus taught about a gate in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And here's what he said about it. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in there. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads unto life. And few there be that find it. Now Ezekiel provides very specific instructions for the eastern gates. The outer one is to remain permanently closed. The inner one is to only be used on certain days. Very specific. And I want you to know that salvation, being saved, being forgiven, going to heaven, involves a very specific gate. And Jesus says this gate is narrow. How narrow is it? It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Very narrow. And I want you to know that Jesus is the narrow gate. There is no other way. He said of himself in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Not only does salvation require a very specific gate that's narrow, this gate is also overlooked. Jesus says in that passage that few there be that find it. Most take the wide path, which leads to destruction. What is the wide path? Well, there's lots of ways to be saved. There's lots of religions all there. They're all the same. Everybody's trying to get to heaven. Uh, It's okay. It doesn't matter how you go. It doesn't matter where you go. Jesus is one way. Buddha's one way. Muhammad's one way. There's all these different ways. That's the broad way. And Jesus says it leads to destruction. He said very few take the narrow gate. Make sure you're one of them. You say, well, how can I be sure that I'm on the narrow gate? What are you trusting? Who are you trusting for your salvation? Here's what it looks like to take the narrow gate. You believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins. That Jesus was buried for your sins. And the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. And if you are trusting Christ alone, you're using the narrow gate. 
If you are trusting anybody, anything else, you're on the wide path and you're headed for destruction. I'm not saying that. Christ said it himself. Very few take the very narrow gate. Make sure you're one of them. So Jesus taught about a gate, but the writer of Hebrews mentions a gate as well. This is in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 12. He says there, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now the sin offering was burned outside the camp. You can read about that in the Old Testament. Well, Jesus died as a sin offering outside the city gate. Calvary, or Golgotha, was outside the city gate at that time. Calvary was also the spot on which the first temple was built. And even before that, it was a spot on which the father Abraham offered his only son Isaac as a sacrifice. What am I saying to you? I am saying that Jesus died for you. So I ask, are you living for him? Jesus died for you. Are you living for him? So all this talk about gates and stuff, it really doesn't have a lot to do with us other than it's in God's word and he wants us to understand it. But the New Testament appropriation is what really matters. Jesus talked about a very narrow gate. Is that the gate through which you're going? If not, you're going, but you're not going to heaven. You're headed for destruction. Jesus is the only way. The narrow gate. Faith alone. By grace alone in Christ alone. And secondly, believer, if you are here today and you are a genuine believer in Christ, Christ died for you. It is your responsibility and mine to live for him. And so we've seen today, as we looked at the gate, we've seen its orientation to the east. We've seen its condition. It's shut. We've seen its reservation. It's only for the prince. And we see finally the appropriation of the gate. Jesus is the narrow gate, the only way to be saved. And for those of us who are saved, he died for us. May we live for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time to be together, such beautiful music we've heard today. And now, Lord, it's time to respond to what we've heard, what we've sung, what we've prayed. There may be people who need to receive Christ as their personal Savior. Give them grace and faith to believe right here, right now. And for those of us who are believers, and maybe have been for years, May we take this opportunity of recognizing Jesus died for us from this day forward. We will live for him. In whose name we pray. Amen.